in her award-winning memoir, Viola Davis, this lady up here, she describes her parents' tumultuous relationship when she was growing up as a little girl. In her home, there was not a lot of love. Often she would hear drunken fights taking place in her home, people yelling at each other. Sometimes there would be blood on the floor because they would turn violent. This is what she saw growing up. This was her idea of marriage and relationship and romantic relationship, and there wasn't a lot of love there. Things weren't much different outside the home. When she would go to school, she was chased by the boys, but it wasn't because they liked her. She was chased because they hated her. They would call her terrible names. They would say terrible things about her skin color. They would call her ugly. She didn't know what it was like to have a boy write her a love letter. She didn't know what it was like to have a, a young man that was genuinely interested in her, genuinely cared about her. As she grew up, her experience with men was something that she needed to be careful of. She saw that when a man was interested in her, it was to take something from her, rather than to give her care and love and, and, and kindness. So her idea of relationship was very limited, very um, constricted. After she graduated from the Juilliard School, she amazing education, brilliant woman. She graduated from the Juilliard School of Drama and began her acting career. Some of you may recognize her from leading roles in movies. As she be, after she began her acting career, she realized, she, she was like, you know, I, I, would, I would like a good man in my life. And as she was talking to a friend of hers, this friend suggested, hey, Violet, why don't you talk to God about it? Why don't you pray about it? And so, I mean, she wasn't religious praying person, but she decided to do that. And so she went to God in prayer, and she gave God a list of things that she was looking for in a man. She was really specific. Told him what she wanted. And uh, a short while after that, um, while she was at work, she met a, a man who seemed interesting to her and was interested in her. And soon they, they went out on a date, and, and right away she realized that this man was very different from the other men that were looking to take from her, other men in her life that didn't really care about her, just wanted to use her. She didn't know any better, and she'd been used, and she'd been hurt. This man was different than the men that she had met before. Um, after their date, he took her back to her apartment. He shook her hand at the, at the doorstep. He said, you are so nice. I just, I just love spending with time with you, and you are so beautiful. Have a nice day. And he left. That's not what she was used to. When she got to know this guy, he continued to show himself as someone that genuinely cared for her, that was interested in her, that was looking out for her well-being. And it was so different from what she had experienced before. It was wonderful. She loved it so much because she realized the, the thing that was different about this is that she had finally found a man that was devoted to her. Not devoted to himself as to what he could get from her, but actually devoted to her. He genuinely loved and cared for her. And uh, when, when they decided to get married, she was so happy that they actually had three different wedding celebrations. Just celebrating. 
this, this amazing experience that she was having with this man, her husband now, devoted to her. You know, in the movies, the stories of romance, now, look, I'm not an authority on this, but, but this is kind of my idea what, from what I've seen, what my wife has helped me to, to learn about in romantic movies. Um, but typically, right, the story is, is two people are trying to find each other. You know, and there's, there's maybe someone that gets in the way. Maybe there's, there's kind of an evil villain that, that takes one of the, the people away, and they don't meet each other, and, and things happen. And finally, at the end, the two lovers find each other, and, and they, they join together, and now they're together. And oftentimes, that's when the movie ends. The movie often ends, the story often ends with us seeing the two lovers come together in some way where they're just holding hands and they're just so into each other and there's, there's just so much love and warmth that's there. And it leaves us thinking that the two end up living happily ever after, right? And we like that. We pay good money for that kind of a story. <clears throat> But life tells us that romantic relationships often don't end up happily ever after. And, even, and if they do, it's not like once people get married, they're just coasting. Just, uh, now that you've gotten married, the hard part is over, right? Now, now you just coast. Down. Everything's going to be great from here on out. Anyone who has been married knows that the difficulty is not in getting married. Yeah, I mean, it, there's a lot of difficulty in finding that person and all that goes into dating and all of that, there's a lot of effort there, and it takes, you know, it's, it's challenging. It can be challenging. But getting married is not the hard part. It's keeping romantic love lasting. It's, it's making the romance last. That's, that's the difficulty, right? It can be a challenge to make romantic love last. So today, as we wrap up our series, three-part series here, that we're calling Romance God's Way, where we're looking at the biblical principles of romance. And, and hopefully we've been able to make it practical for everyone, whether you're married or whether you're not. Um, these, these principles are spiritual principles that affect our relationship with God, but they also influence how we relate to each other in romantic ways. And God has a lot to say about that. So we, anyway, we've been looking at that. Um, today, as we, as we consider this, this topic again, again, I'd like to look at what the Bible says about how to make romance last. How can it last? There are many reasons romance does not last. I mean, time can be brutal to a romantic relationship, right? People change. Often, you know, marriage is, in fact, the number one reason people say marriages don't work, like they, they ask for a divorce is, because there are, there are, you know, irreconcilable differences. Um, people change. People make bad choices. People make mistakes. Circumstances in life can change and really damage a marriage. And these things can cause romance to come to an end. But I'm so thankful that the Bible shows us a way. It shows us how to make love last. It shows us that love was not designed to come to an end, that romance was not designed to be temporary. It's designed to last. 
And so we're going to be taking a look at a teaching in the Old Testament that shows us how this can happen, how we can experience lasting love, and in our romantic relationships, how these romantic relationships can be enduring and stand the test of time. All right, the title of the message this morning is Wholehearted Devotion, and before we get into the Bible teaching, I'd like to just pause for prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that this wonderful experience that so many people pay money to watch on TV, this, this romantic love that you designed for that romance that you create to never end. That you designed for love and relationship to last forever. And so God, I pray that as we um, pause right now and take a look at what your word has to say, that you would speak to us words of life. We, we long to experience more of love. And so I pray, God, that we would be able to do that, that you would make us receptive to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 33. It's page 789 in your pew Bible right in front of you. If you want to use that, you can just open it up to page 789, and you'll be right there at Jeremiah 31. <clears throat> and as you're going there, I'd just like to observe that people have struggled with this idea of wholehearted devotion. I mean, we like the idea of wholehearted devotion. A love that continues and never comes, never comes to an end. That's a wonderful thing. But we have struggled to experience as people wholehearted devotion. And, and that's been the struggle of the human experience ever since Eden. Ever since Adam and Eve, you think about Adam and Eve, God created this beautiful paradise where they had everything they needed. If anyone was set up to have a wholehearted, devoted experience to each other, you know, a romance that never would end, it was Adam and Eve. A relationship with God that would never be broken, Adam and Eve, right? They're in this perfect place. All the food they want, the temperature is perfect outside, nothing to argue about, right? No one's cold, no one's too cold, no one's too hot. Everyone, if you're married, you know about that. Um, everyone's, everyone's happy, right? There's, there's like, why would they argue? Why would they want to break this down? Why would they want to mess this up? It seems like there's no, they would have no reason for breaking a relationship with God, breaking a relationship with, with each other. And yet, after listening to the serpent for just a few moments, Eve is tempted by the opportunity to become like God, and she decides in that moment to throw it all away and to break her relationship with God. What is very interesting about this story, many of you are familiar with it, but if you're not, what happens next is that Adam and Eve go and hide. God comes and finds them. God asks Adam what he has done and not only has Adam broken relationship with God by disobeying him, but now Adam automatically, the next thing Adam does when he's questioned is that he breaks relationship with his wife. Well, God, the woman that you gave me, she's responsible for all this. And then Eve said, careful, careful, I heard that. And then Eve, then Eve says, oh, what have I, what, what happened? Well, the serpent he deceived me. And the implication of saying the serpent is what? The serpent God that you made. He deceived me. And so what happens is there is this immediate breakdown in relationship with God and relationship with one another. 
This resulted in terrible circumstances. They lost paradise. Death entered the world. Sadness entered the world. And it it, it was horrible. But people didn't learn from that. In fact, even though that happened thousands of years ago and there have been generations to learn from these mistakes, not a lot of learning has happened. It's not like we've suddenly become wholeheartedly devoted to God and wholeheartedly devoted to each other because we have learned from the mistake of Adam and Eve. No, things have gotten worse, in fact. It's continuing to be a struggle, even down to today in our sophisticated world with all our self-help books, with all the education that we have. There's still a problem with wholehearted devotion. Look at the divorce statistics. The American Psychological Association says, and this is something that is not, you know, it's kind of common knowledge, says that the divorce rate among people who are the first marriage of people, the divorce rate there is about 40 to 50 percent in the general population. It goes way less with people who are devoted to Christ, praise the Lord, but that's the general population, about 40 to 50 percent of first marriages. Second marriages, that percentage goes up. Third marriages, it goes up even higher. Even though we know in all, you know, we, we know what Adam and Eve did. We know that breaking relationship with God results in breaking relationship with other people. We might know all these things, even though we, we, we want to be devoted to each other. And as Christians, we want to be devoted to God. It's a problem. We struggle with that. And I'm so thankful that in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33, God gives us hope to have wholehearted devotion towards him. And towards, and in, in our marriages, husbands towards wives, wives towards husbands. Because he addresses the problem at the heart of the issue. Look at what it says in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. This is God speaking. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Listen to the language. This is marriage language. I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. God is talking about a covenant. He's talking about a new covenant. Because the covenant that he made with their ancestors in verse 32 did not work, obviously. So it did not work. So he is coming and he's offering to make a new covenant. This new covenant will be different from the one that he made with their ancestors. Now, the covenant that he's referring to, this this covenant that he made with their ancestors, is referring to God giving his law to Moses on Mount Sinai. That is the covenant. God wrote these words of the covenant, this agreement between God and his people. He wrote that down and gave it to Moses, and Moses goes and he gives the Ten Commandment law to the people. And the people have this really encouraging, really promising response. They say in Exodus 24, 7, they say, all that God has said, we will do. They entered into this agreement with God. They were were devoted. 
They were in, they were committed. Here's their God. He's given, he's given them his laws, and they, they accept it. They say, yes. And less than two months after they made that agreement, they broke it. They broke it so quickly. They ended up worshiping a golden calf. Where's our leader? Moses is up on the mountain. We don't know what to do. They made a golden calf and began to worship that golden calf in direct violation to the covenant, which says not to make any graven images. They broke that covenant. And so God is saying here, that's, that's the covenant that they broke. So I'm going to make a new covenant. Now typically, when someone damages a relationship, if you are the guilty party in damaging a relationship in some way, typically we expect the guilty person to fix it, right? We expect the person who is guilty in the relationship to say, I'm sorry. Oh, that's so wonderful when someone says, I'm sorry when they've been wrong, right? We expect someone who has hurt the relationship to own it, to be responsible, to give the bouquet of flowers. Always a good move, gentlemen. Give the bouquet of flowers. To pay for restitution. Whatever we did to damage the, 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 agree, the, the relationship, if we are guilty, typically it's, it's our response. We, we expect that person who is guilty to, to fix it. But notice who's fixing the broken covenant here. It's not the ones who were unfaithful. It's not the one who was unfaithful. The people who were unfaithful. The people who broke the covenant. The people who lacked wholehearted devotion to God. They are not the ones who are fixing the, 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 the damaged relationship. The one who's fixing it, it's God. After breaking God's law, his pe the, the people's devotion to God, the people of Israel, their devotion to God, got progressively worse. Generation after generation, they, again, they didn't learn from their mistake. They continued to break the law. They continued to go against what God wrote. And by the time, uh, actually before the time of Jeremiah, God wanted to, to show them in a very specific way, what wholehearted devotion looks like for people who continually break his law. People who have this pattern of breaking relationship with God and breaking relationship with other people. And so this is what God does. He goes and gets a prophet named Hosea, and he tells Hosea to demonstrate wholehearted devotion. This is what he asks Hosea to do. This is years before the time of Jeremiah. Go and marry a promiscuous woman. Now, what kind of marriage advice is this? Go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. Why? For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. God is saying to his people, you guys... You guys are uncommitted. You're not committed to me. It's, it's a partial commitment. You might call me your God. You might be really grateful for the things that I give. You might say, oh man, we have a rich history. God delivered us from Egypt, and he gave us the promised land. We are his people. But he's saying, you are not totally devoted to me. And to help you see what's going on, Hosea, go and marry a prostitute and have children with her. 
Go marry a woman who has a reputation of being unfaithful and is probably not going to be faithful after you marry her, which was the case in Hosea's life. This is what wholehearted devotion looks like. That's one thing to be devoted to someone when they're just doing everything that you like and they're devoted to you and they're treating you really well. It's an entirely different thing to be devoted to someone who is completely not devoted to you. God is saying, I am this way towards my people. Though they are unfaithful, though they act like a prostitute, I'm going to continue to pursue them. I'm going to continue to go after them. Though they might, marry, though they might worship other gods and, and act in a way that is unfaithful to me, I'm going to continue to be faithful to them. That is wholehearted devotion. That is a secure person. Someone who's going to be wholeheartedly devoted when we're at our worst, when we're in the, in the midst of an unfaithful life. This is God towards his people. <clears throat> okay. God's people had a reputation of infidelity, and yet... What I want to point out here is that years after God says, hey, I'm calling you a promiscuous people, you guys are unfaithful to me. Years after that, we come to the book of Jeremiah. Even though Hosea occurs later on in the Old Testament, it happened before Jeremiah. And when, he, when we get to the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 31, God is not calling his people anymore promiscuous. He's not calling them unfaithful, even though they have lived that way. This is what God calls his people in Jeremiah 31, verse 21. It's just a couple verses before the promise that we read that he's going to make a new covenant. Listen to what he calls this promiscuous people, this people that have been unfaithful to him. Verse 21, return Virgin Israel? Return, virgin Israel. He's using transformative language here. He's not calling his people prostitute. He's not calling them promiscuous, even though they were guilty. They had a long history of that. They had a reputation of that. After all they had done, and in fact, in Jeremiah, they are, the people of God are in Babylon. They are exiled in Babylon because they were worshiping other gods. They wouldn't argue at all if God had said, you guys are, you guys are spiritually, spiritually speaking, you guys are prostitutes. You're promiscuous spiritually. But he doesn't. He says, return virgin Israel. How is it that God is able to call his people who have been promiscuous to call them as if they have not been promiscuous? How is it that he's able to call them as if they had never sinned pure, just like a groom on, a, on his wedding day can speak to his faithful bride. Uh, he calls his people in the same, with the same language, return virgin Israel. Here's how. It's because God's love is transformative. Now, I don't know what kind of decisions you might have made, what kind of mistakes you might have made, especially relationally. But God is able to restore us. He is able to take people who fit the description of a prostitute and able to call that people virgin Israel. He's able to take people and make them as if they had never sinned, 
pure in his sight. So you might look at your own history and all the things that you may have done, mistakes you've made, hurts that have been done to you and occurred in your life. You are not damaged goods in God's eyes. He looks at you and he says he sees perfection and holiness. And this is not just some game. This is not him just using language. This is reality because his love is able to change us. It's able to transform us and heal that which is broken. God's devotion is transformative. When he gave his law to Israel, what we were just talking about with Moses, when he gave his law to Israel, he didn't make a mistake. When he gave his law, the Ten Commandment law, on Sinai through Moses to his people, there was nothing wrong with the Ten Commandment law. Look at what the Bible writers say about God's holy law. Two examples, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. King David, the man after God's own heart, this is what he says about the law. He says that the law of the Lord, notice that word, is perfect. That means it's lacking nothing. It is complete. Paul, in the New Testament, says that the law is holy. It's lacking nothing. It is complete. What I think is very significant about these descriptions of the Bible writers regarding the law is that these descriptions are the very same way that we describe God. God is perfect. When it comes to love, God lacks nothing. In fact, the Bible says that God is love personified. He's the def definition of love. God is love. This is the essence of who God is. He is perfect in love. He is holy love. <coughs> this is the description of God. And so the problem with the old covenant, the covenant that God made with his people on Mount Sinai where he gave the Ten Commandment law, the problem with that covenant was not the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandment law is a description of God's character which is enduring forever. God does not change in these ways. There will never be a time when he is no longer perfect. Never be a time when he is no longer holy. Never be a time when he is no longer love. This is who God is. It is enduring. It is the description of what enduring love looks like. Enduring love towards God, the first four commandments. Enduring love towards others, the last six commandments. This is what it looks like to have unbroken covenant. So the problem with the old covenant is not the law. The problem with the Old Covenant is that people were unfaithful to it because they were partially devoted. And partial devotion to God is the definition of infidelity. I mean, the people of Israel, God was their God, right? I mean, he brought them out of Egypt. He'd done so much for them, rained bread from heaven, opened up a rock in the desert, and it poured out water. Like, God was their God, but they were not fully devoted, not wholeheartedly devoted. And that is the definition of infidelity. A few years ago, my wife and I were at a marriage retreat, and the speaker at this marriage retreat asked a really bold question. He said, I would like for you to raise your hand if you have cheated on your spouse 400 people, 200 couples in the room. The lights were actually not turned down, as I recall. Please raise your hand if you've cheated on your spouse. 
Well, in that moment, I'm thinking a couple of things. First of all, I'm glad that I haven't cheated on my spouse. <laughs> Second of all, who would raise their hand to such a question? He said, well, okay, okay, let me, let me say it another way. Have you ever given time and energy and effort that should have been devoted to your spouse and maybe spent it at work? Have you ever put work before your spouse? Have you ever put your children before your spouse? Have you ever maybe put friendships before your spouse or hobbies before your spouse? Have you ever cheated your spouse from things that the spouse, your spouse deserved and ended up giving it to other things like that? He said, okay, let me ask a question again. How many of you have cheated on your spouse? Right? All these hands go up. Completely different perspective, right? You know, sometimes infidelity, especially the person who is unfaithful, can really fly under the radar for that person. Other people might see it. But initially, it can be justified. Oh, well, you know, I'm just, just working hard. Or, oh, well, I'm just, you know, she's just a friend, right? I mean, you know, and, and, and infidelity can be easily justified. They can, they can be blind. We can be blind to that. And so the idea of thinking of ourselves as unfaithful to God, that may not be very appealing. But that is what happens when we are not wholly devoted to him, when our whole heart is not his. We can come to church, we can pray and do all of these things, but if he doesn't have all of our heart, well, that's the definition of infidelity. And so, this is an uncomfortable reality. I don't, I don't hear any amens when I say that, right? This is an uncomfortable um, thing. But if you're like me, I have a reputation of cheating on God. Time that belongs to Him, I've devoted to other things. Energy, effort, I've devoted to other things. Oh God, wait, wait a second, I'll, I'll get to you. I'm doing this real quick. No, no, this is a good thing. And we can do good things. You know, we can, we can put our, our time and our energy into good things. But if it's not God leading us there, if it's not out of devotion to God, then it's infidelity. Well, to solve this problem of infidelity towards God, some people say that the Ten Commandments were not meant to last. You know, we just keep sinning all the time, and I feel bad about being sinning, you know, about sinning. It's this law that points out sin in my life. Hey, so maybe the solution is this. Maybe the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses, maybe those weren't supposed to last. Maybe that was just for that time. Maybe it was God just saying, oh man, that didn't work out well. I need to make a new covenant. But that's, that's not it. Because after all, the Ten Commandment law is called a covenant. Covenants are not meant to be broken. And the second indicator that the Ten Commandments were meant to last is because they were carved in stone. Now, when writing is carved in stone, it's meant to last. That's why it gets carved in stone. Take, for example, the Rosetta Stone. This was carved about 2,000 years ago, a little over 2,000 years ago. And it was moved around in different places. It's broken, obviously. And it was discovered, kind of an interesting story. It was discovered because people were building a fort in Egypt, 
and people needed construction material for a wall for this fort, and they used the Rosetta Stone to be part of that wall. And someone discovered it as part of this wall. And so they pulled it out, and now it's this, you know, obviously this amazing discovery, so important, what we have learned through the breaking the code of hieroglyphics, just so important for, for reason. This stone lasted because, or this inscription rather, lasted because it was engraved in stone. Had it been written on papyrus, had it been written on, on parchment, probably wouldn't have lasted. Probably wouldn't have been put in a wall either, but it probably wouldn't have lasted. When we want something to last, we carve it in stone. That's why it lasted. In the new covenant, God doesn't just come up. He's not coming up with a new law. He's taking the old law, the original law, the law given on Mount Sinai. And what's new about the new covenant It's not that it's a new law. It's the same law. It's the law of love. It's this enduring law that lasts forever. He takes that law and he puts it in a new location. That's what's new. Same law, new location. Look at what it says in Jeremiah 31. I think it should be uh, verse 33 not verse 32. But anyway, he says, I will put, this is the new covenant I'm going to make, he says in verse 33, I will put my law in their minds. In other words, he's going to change something that we cannot change. You can't change your thoughts. Don't think about the green monkey. Like, you can't not do that. Like, we, we can't change our thoughts. But he says, I'm going to put my law in your mind, and I'm going to write it on your heart. Now, that word write that I've highlighted there, it is the same word that describes the act of carving letters in stone. This is a permanent, in, this has permanent intent. God wants to put his law in our minds. In other words, he wants to transform our thoughts so that they come into, um, so they're, they're shaped into, into God's thoughts. So they look like his character. He wants to change our selfish way of thinking and make it into his loving way of thinking. And he says, I'm going to put my law. He's going to do it. Notice where the action comes from. It's not, here's the law, you figure it out. He says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to change your way of thinking, and I'm going to take my law, and I'm going to write it. I'm going to inscribe it. I'm going to carve it on your heart. I'm going to change your desires, change your thoughts, change your impulses change your affections. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. <clears throat> now, I'd realize that this sounds nice, God's law in us, but how does this actually happen? One of the best examples that I can think of, of wholehearted devotion, is the life of one of Jesus' followers named Peter, his, his disciple Peter. The life of Peter after the cross. Before the cross, Peter, <coughs> before the cross, Peter wanted to be wholly devoted to Jesus. That was his desire. But Peter struggled with that. At times, he was there. He was with Jesus. He was devoted to him. But then at other times, he was thinking about himself. How can he be number one? How can he save his hide when the mob came to arrest Jesus, Peter, who had just declared his undying devotion to his master? I will never leave you. He's out. The mob comes to arrest Jesus after he tries to 
kill somebody, he runs. He leaves. He wanted to be devoted wholeheartedly to Jesus, but he just couldn't. But after the cross, we see a different Peter. We see a Peter who is courageous. We see a Peter who, though he is threatened with death and with beating and persecution, he continues to preach the gospel. And when he is beaten, we find him praising God that he is accounted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. It's a different Peter. And the historical records tell us that Peter died for his faith. He was willing to die. He was, more, he was, he was willing to die rather than deny his Lord. He died for his faith. Historical record tells us that Peter was going to be crucified. He said, I'm not worthy to die the way my Lord died upright. Turn me upside down. Crucify me upside down. That's how Peter died. What was it that changed him? Peter saw wholehearted devotion for an unfaithful person. When he looked on the cross, he saw God putting it all out there for his people, even though they were spitting on him, calling him names. He saw that, and it changed him. <coughs> he was changed. The love of God is transformative. When we accept wholehearted devotion towards us, what is often, if you're anything like me, I'm like, how could God love me? How could I accept God's love for me, his promises for me? I've been so unfaithful. Well, that's why God's love is so wonderful, because he is wholeheartedly devoted towards unfaithful people. And it's that which gives us hope. It's that which breaks the cycle of infidelity towards him and infidelity in our relationships. God changes us. It's his love that changes us. Okay, last thing and then I'm done. <clears throat> in our first years of marriage, Rosie and I, um, I would do this thing. I would give Rosie, uns my wife, Rosie, unsolicited advice as to how she should treat me. Yeah. I actually did that. Um, and maybe you're laughing because you know what that's like. I don't know. Um, but the reason I gave her advice, my intentions were good. I mean, she, she's so amazing. And I just love the way she treated me most of the time. It was just those few instances. I was like, man, if I can just tell her what I need right there, she, this would just be amazing all the time. And really what was happening was I was in love with me, and I wanted Rosie to be in love with me. I wanted us to be in love with the same person, basically. <clears throat> and that doesn't work. Love is not inspired through criticism. It's not inspired through advice. Love is awakened by love. And when I began to turn my attention to God and accept his devotion towards me, when I didn't need affirmation from other people, when I came to our marriage relationship not needing something from her because I had been loved by God, things changed. I didn't need to get a standing ovation for doing the dishes. I didn't need that. I could do the dishes, even if it wasn't even recognized do that. Why? Because I, I've been loved. I didn't, I, I've been, I, 
You know, when I'm affirmed by God, I can, I can show love to my wife. When I'm affirmed by God, when I'm loved by God, I don't even need her to agree with me. I can still show her love. I don't need her to have a good day for me to show her love. And when I am able to love like that, that's, that's lasting romance, right? I mean, that's romance. You know, when you can be loving towards someone, it doesn't matter how they're acting toward Now, listen, please, I'm not talking about abusive relationships. If you're in an abusive relationship, you get out. You're not, you don't stay under the same roof with an abusive person. But even then, you can continue to show love. You can just continue to pray. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. I mean, he shows us how to show love regardless of the circumstances. Be safe. But the reason I'm giving this example is the majority of relationships, they end in, the majority of relationships that end in divorce. Number one reason is, well, we just, we're just incompatible. Incompatible. Second, second main reason unfaithfulness, infidelity. Yeah. But God shows us a wholehearted devotion that empowers us to show love regardless of the circumstances. And that is a winning love. I find that when I'm able to love my wife like that, our home is much happier. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. And, and she loves me like that too, and I'm really grateful for that. Love lasts when we let God love us. When we hear the words of God and we recognize that he's speaking to us, when he says, I love you. I gave my life for you. Unfaithful though you might be, I still love you. When we accept that kind of love, it changes us. It gives us this wholehearted devotion for him. And when we accept that kind of love, we can experience a romance that lasts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us, though we do not deserve it. Thank you for loving us even when we are unfaithful to you. And I pray, God, that you would increase our capacity to receive your love, that we would turn our attention to you, that as we think about the unfaithfulness that we have shown towards you and that we have shown towards others, I pray, God, that we would receive your faithfulness towards us and that we would be changed. I want to pray for our marriages in a special way now. I pray, God, that you would bring about healing in the places where there is brokenness. And that husbands and wives would be so filled up with your love that they could love each other forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.